Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. Kriti Sharma is a researcher with the organisation Human Rights Watch. Her work includes investigating and documenting human rights violations against disabled people around the world. Because as a result of more than 40 years of war, Afghanistan has one of the largest populations per capita of persons with disabilities around the world. At least one in five Afghan households includes an adult or a child with a physical, sensory, intellectual, psychosocial disability. Kriti spent time in Afghanistan researching for the paper Disability is Not Weakness, Discrimination and Barriers Facing Women and Girls with Disabilities in Afghanistan. You know, one woman told us, when you go into the ministry, everyone looks at you as a sexual toy. They think that you are not a healthy girl and they will never marry someone. And it makes it easier for them to have sex with you because they feel there's no accountability. They feel that a woman with a disability is seen as someone, you know, quote unquote, who's seen as being vulnerable, who will not report it. I wanted to find out what is happening and what will happen to Afghanistan's disabled people, women and girls in particular. I asked Kriti what her research involved. We also looked at the trauma that conflict and war and crisis has caused in Afghanistan, where many people have psychosocial disabilities such as depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress uh, due to the protracted conflict. So that's really what led us to, to look at this issue in Afghanistan. And what we found, you know, really looking at Kabul, Herat, uh, and Mazar-e-Sharif, which were the locations that we could conduct research in, you know, given the the security situation in the country uh, until last year, is that because of violent changes of power, you know, long periods of contested government, endemic poverty, widespread insecurity or hostilities, it really undermined the efforts by successive governments to have strong disability rights policies, um, despite the fact that this population has continued to increase. So that's really what led us to to look at this issue. There was a real opportunity with international funding going into Afghanistan right from 2002 um, to address these longstanding deficiencies on disability rights. And we also found the Afghanistan government had made commitments on disability rights in 2012 they signed the UN Treaty on Rights of Persons with Disabilities. They enacted, uh, following that, national legislation on this issue. Um, and so we really wanted to look at the situation of people with disabilities on the ground and what were the barriers they faced, particularly women and girls with disabilities. And what did you find? What we found is that there is entrenched discrimination which means that people with disabilities face significant obstacles in their daily lives, obstacles and barriers to education, employment, healthcare, even though these rights are guaranteed under the Afghan constitution and international human rights law. Just for someone to access a child to go to school, for a woman to access healthcare or reproductive health, for someone to take a bus or transport, uh, for someone to get a job, There was so much stigma uh, because people with disabilities in Afghanistan, like in many countries, uh, could be seen as a burden by their families. And as a result, they faced increased violence in and outside the home. This stigma 
uh, was really multiplied when we looked at women and girls with disabilities because they faced intersecting forms of discrimination, you know, with regards to gender bias, uh, but also the layer of disability. And that really resulted in a compounding effect in terms of the barriers they faced on a daily basis. So just to give you an example, you know, one woman with a disability explained to us how when she acquired a disability in an airstrike, she was told by her fiancé's parents that their son would no longer marry her because they felt that she would be incapable of carrying out necessary chores on the family farm. Women with disabilities were often seen as being unfit to get married. And so as a result, they faced discriminations on a daily basis. Even when you looked at girls' access to education, uh, we found that you know, girls with disabilities had to have long journeys to access their nearest government schools. Public schools were not equipped to accommodate their needs. And when it came to children with disabilities, there was an estimated number of 80% of girls uh, with disabilities who were not enrolled in schools because of these barriers. You talk of the UN resolutions, you've spoken of the then Afghani government working to include provision for disability within their constitution. Obviously, these things are not working. And now, obviously, you have this situation with the Taliban coming in. But what I'd like to ask is how much has you have the the physical infrastructure of a country and you also have the religious and cultural infrastructure. How have these intersected to create the, the situation that disabled women and girls are now finding themselves in? So women and girls in general faced a number of barriers during the Taliban regime. And there was a significant progress that was made on women's rights in the last 15, 20 years. While there has been progress on many fronts, we have seen that women and girls with disabilities were often excluded from that progress, or they faced challenges in accessing it. For example, Afghanistan's healthcare system significantly improved after 2001, and access to healthcare in rural areas was poor, but in urban centers, um, it, there was a lot of progress. However, when it came to women with disabilities, they couldn't always access it. You know, one 26-year-old woman who lived in Herat City uh, in an outlying district, she developed a disability when she was seven. She became paralyzed in her legs because of cerebral palsy. And in her home district, there were no services available uh, for someone like her. She could not even get access to a wheelchair. Even when she managed to reach an urban area and get a wheelchair, she told us, if I ever return to my district and my wheelchair gets damaged, there's no one who can help me. And it really caused a lot of trauma, sadness. Um, she told us she went into depression as a result. She felt that you know, she could not go out as girls her age were going out. They would go to places for recreation. She couldn't even exit the house. And as a result, she ended up having a psychosocial disability as well. When we look at mental health services, services are severely lacking. You know, there has been government assistance for such services, but there are critical gaps that remained in terms of availability and quality of the support outside Kabul in, in other, um, other rural areas. And the same goes for women and girls who acquired a disability as a result of conflict-related incidents. The government system for determining eligibility for assistance or financial help, help was so onerous 
uh, that they would often not be able to do the paperwork to actually get that help. Very often, we also found that they faced sexual harassment. Sexual harassment is widespread in Afghanistan. There has been you know, studies, um, a recent one in 2016, that found that 90% of the women that were interviewed experienced sexual harassment in public places, 91% in educational environments, 87% in workplaces. But when it came to women with disabilities, they told us that they experienced it in government offices, including in the very ministries that were charged with supporting them and providing assistance, like the Ministry of Labor, Social Affairs, Martyrs and, and, and Disabled. You know, one woman told us, when you go into the ministry, everyone looks at you as a sexual toy. They think that you are not a healthy girl and they will never marry someone. And it makes it easier for them to have sex with you because they feel there's no accountability. They feel that a woman with a disability is seen as someone, you know, quote unquote, who's seen as being vulnerable, who will not report it. So these are the types of barriers that women and girls have disabilities have faced in Afghanistan, despite the overall progress that we've seen on women's rights. Who is there to protect them? I think it's important to, you know, change the lens from which we look at disability rights and move away from a paternalistic lens of protection to really see them as rights holders and how do we enable those rights? How do we ensure they get access on an equal basis to employment, education, and other types of services that they might need? When we heard testimonies of women with disabilities who were being harassed and sexually harassed by the very ministries that were charged with um, ensuring their rights, you found that it was very difficult for them to access even basic uh, services. And they had no one to turn to in terms of reporting that abuse. Today, our fear is that the situation for these women is going to become worse given the current situation of the US withdrawal of troops and the, the Taliban takeover. So looking at it through the lens of somebody whose rights should be enabled and empowered, and looking at it through the lens of what is going on right now in Afghanistan, what organizations, what recourse is there to help? It's not about, in, in, in this instance, about protecting, but just to help these women. What can we, what can I be doing to help? The situation in Afghanistan today is extremely challenging uh, for all Afghans and particularly people with disabilities. Um, most people who have been approved for evacuation cannot even get to the airport. In some cases, people who have been sponsored by other governments and have been summoned to the airport have been unable to even reach entry points. And in other cases, they have been turned away from the airport. When you think of this for someone with a physical disability, as an example, how do they even get to the airport? The evacuation process, is it accessible? Does it include them? Are governments ensuring safe passage for them to the airport? In other conflicts, we have seen that people with disabilities often get left behind. And once they're left behind um, and the family has you know, evacuated, there's really no one to support them. So it's really critical for governments today to ensure that, you know, given, even given the current circumstances, they try to include uh, people with disabilities in evacuations. When we're talking about women and girls, 
we are hearing reports of women and girls in universities being told that they cannot attend classes or travel outside without a male relative as an escort. We are seeing this also in workplaces where reports are coming in of Taliban in some cities requiring employers to end the employment of women. And then if you think about women and girls with disabilities, how it affects them, they were already marginalized prior to the U.S. withdrawal. Uh, 80% of girls with disabilities were not enrolled in schools. That situation is going to become worse. So it's critical that humanitarian organizations on the ground do everything they can to include women and girls with disabilities in services, in the aid that's reaching, whether it's food, access to education, health services, or psychosocial support. But how can those organizations do that if they can't even get into the country at the moment? There are organizations and humanitarians that are operating on the ground in uh, Afghanistan today. Uh, UN agencies, the World Food Programme, and a number of others, the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, a number of other humanitarian organizations that are there today that are doing their best to to support people on the ground and provide um, assistance. And the recommendation is really to, to them to ensure that when there are food distributions, it is done in an accessible location, that people with disabilities, um, as much as possible, are given priority that when they're when they're offering psychosocial support, they include people with disabilities. When they're offering access to health services, that it is done in a way that people with disabilities can access it. We're not just talking about the service, it's also about the information. So it's important that you know, even with evacuations, the information about evacuations is also in an accessible format for someone with an intellectual disability to understand um, and be able to travel there to be evacuated. And while it is you know, a a very desperate situation on the ground and humanitarian organizations are are really under pressure um, because of the circumstances. It really is a part of their their duty of care to ensure people with disabilities are accommodated, especially in a country like Afghanistan, when one in five Afghans have a disability. So the paper that you had written in 2020, what had you hoped would come from the research that you had conducted? We hoped that the report we published in 2020 would push donor governments, the Afghan government and humanitarian organizations, prioritize and ensure inclusion of people with disabilities, particularly women and girls with disabilities. Today, we are calling on governments to pledge new support for non-governmental organizations inside and outside of Afghanistan that assist with refugee resettlement or otherwise provide humanitarian assistance and protect human rights uh, to include people with disabilities, to ensure that they are part of the services being delivered. And the second thing I would underline is that the Security Council, the UN Security Council, is set to renew the mandate of the UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan in September. And it is critical that in its mandate, people with disabilities are included, because that will go a long way in ensuring their rights and protection on the ground. Kriti, I have to ask one more question, and that is, often people will say to me when I interview them, you know, a certain organisation, if they mandate it, if it is within their constitution or whatever, it means that it, it has to happen. It has to provide some sort of protection. Is that realistic in terms of the UN mandating it 
and governments around the world actually doing this? Is it realistic or is it just, is it a pipe dream really? We have seen in conflicts around the world, whether it is in Central African Republic or South Sudan, when UN Security Council resolutions include people with disabilities in their mandate, it goes a long way in ensuring that humanitarian assistance on the ground is inclusive of people with disabilities, that UN agency and independent monitoring mechanisms actually monitor and report on data and human rights abuses against people with disabilities on the ground. So I wouldn't say it's a pipe dream. I think we need to acknowledge that the situation on the ground in Afghanistan today is extremely challenging for humanitarians. They are really doing their best to provide access to assistance for as many people as possible. We see governments trying to evacuate uh, people before the deadline uh, of 31st August, but it's essential that people with disabilities are included, especially given that one in five people in Afghanistan have a disability. Thank you to Kriti Sharma from the Human Rights Watch organization. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube.